Hello, everybody. I am Pastor Richard Wesley Johnson. And I am Dr. Corey Little Edwards. And this is the Elusive Dream Podcast. Yes, it is. Now, for all of those listening, let's recap some key points from our last episode. In episode one, we concluded that the dream of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a beloved community. And there are two reasons why the dream is so elusive. One being white supremacy and the other being the separation of church and state. Yeah, yeah. These have broad, important impacts on churches and clergy, actually. Yes. And we also talked about this beloved community really being a spirit led movement, one that reflects the way of Jesus calling to Christians to oneness, what some people may call solidarity and not diversity. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a good deal of emphasis on diversity in certain Christian circles, right, Pastor Rich? Mm-hmm. Uh, but our call is far higher than that, right? Amen. It's not simply diversity. As you mentioned, Jesus prayed, as we know from John seventeen twenty one, that Christians would be one. Yes. So having laid that groundwork in episode one, now in episode two, I want to start us off with a riddle. It's an, it comes from an age-old question. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? Hmm. Mm. Let me think about that. Think on that. (laughs) Uh, I think I'm going to go with the chicken. And I'm going to go with the chicken because I think God settled that in the Garden of Eden. Oh, well, I'm not going to argue with you on that. (laughs) But let's turn our attention to a similar kind of riddle. What comes first, Dr. Corey? Diversity or justice? I think this is really important for us to understand. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually a pretty tricky one. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one that's really stumped uh, many of us. Uh, Diversity is actually something that's valued across the United States, actually globally, right? And so today, you know, it's not only um, businesses that want to be more diverse, you have schools wanting to be more diverse, churches wanting to be more diverse. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is something that's become kind of a goal, so to speak. Um, And it's pretty notable, right? I mean, given the fact that the United States has been segregated for so long, right? I mean, Jim Crow was just dismantled, what, 50 years ago? Just 50 years ago, segregation was the law of the land for the South under Jim Crow. I mean, from the late 1800s to 1965. And in the North, don't think y'all get off the hook. It was de facto. It was just how we did life in the North. And segregation is how we have been taught also to do church. I mean, Segregated churches were promoted in seminaries by other church leaders and mission organizations mm-hmm. as long as there's been formal worship. And, and check this out. I'm a church planter and church planters want their churches to do what? To grow. <laughs> right. And to grow your church, we would look to uh, a, a theologian and professor Donald McGavern who developed the homogeneous unit principle. Did I say that correctly? You got it. That's cool. I I can roll with it. Well, the homogeneous unit principle says it's easier for people to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic or class barriers. And honestly, Donald McRaven got that right. I mean, it was a really good strategy because of something that sociologists call homophily. All right. Well, now you got to slow down. I'm not familiar with that one. (laughs) For all of the lay people out there, let me even just try to uh, spell it. Uh, H-O-M-O. P-H-I-L-Y. Is that right? That's right. Okay. That's right. All right. That's so right. what does it mean now that I know how to spell it? Okay. So basically all homophily means is that people like to be with people that are like them. Mm-hmm. Another way to describe it is birds of a feather flock together. 
I know that one. Yeah, yeah, you got that right. So basically what that means is that people hang out with people who are like them. And the deal is that as people do that, they end up continuing to connect with people who are like them, right? It becomes Mm. kind of a pattern. Mm -hmm. But something else is going on at the same time, right? Because if you're hanging out with people who are like you and you continue to do that, then you aren't hanging out with people who are not like you. That's right. Right? Yeah, yeah. So this continues to get kind of repeated. In society, mm-hmm. in the United States, however, right, the one way in which we tend to organize and connect with people is along racial lines. Well, I mean, there's a lot of options out there for how we could organize ourselves. <laughs> Sports, you know, music. Mm-hmm. Why are we so largely organized around race? Well, the deal is this. I mean, we are taught this all over the place. Like we mm. see racial segregation all the time, where we, how we grew up, right? And many of us in the neighborhoods we grew up in, in the schools we attended, the churches we attended. We even see this on TV, mm-hmm. right? We're talking about the movie. We're talking about movies. We're talking about the news. All of that. We continue to see people hanging out with other people, connecting with other people who were like them racially. Yeah, I can. Wow, I can think about some significant TV shows for me growing up. Uh, The Cosby Show and A Different World Mm -hmm. were shows with primarily black class uh, casts who uh, casted a light on black culture. I mean, the Cosbys were showing us that black folk could be doctors and lawyers and collect fine art and listen to classical jazz. (laughs) And A Different World gave us that window into the historically black college experience to which affirm why I wanted to go to a HBCU. Mm-hmm. And these shows stand out particularly because all the other shows on TV were dominantly white. Oh yeah, right. I mean, we would organize your whole week <laughs> around watching the Cosby show sure in a different world because they stood out, That's right? 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 And it and it demonstrated and it was reinforcing uh that, you know, you're different, right? Mm-hmm. Um and this is the thing. I mean, even though that's really good and we were being encouraged because it was good for people of color it was coming out of a context of us being excluded in the first place right right yeah so but this doesn't just happen in the media or on television or in movies right we experience this in our interactions as well and it can be really subtle Mm -hmm. um um, it can be in a way that you don't even kind of necessarily pick up on it at first. Mm. You know, I'm thinking about um, one example, right? So I've told our listeners in our last episode that I used to be an engineer. Mm-hmm. And as you know, there aren't a lot of engineers of color, right. uh, let alone women. So, you know, and there are a lot of engineers of color, right? And so when I was, I was working at this company and there was this a white man who was like this really up and coming uh, person in the company. And you can just tell about how people interacted with him, other authority figures in the country, in the company. And he was an entry-level manager. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I would see him in the hallway and it would just be he and I, and he would like regularly walk right by me and not say anything, mm. which is a little weird because, you know, when you're walking by people, you, you make some just, eye contact, you make, some, you make some eye contact, you know, you might say, you know, hey, mm-hmm. you know, you're not trying to stop, stop and have a conversation, but you acknowledge their presence. That's right. And what yeah. happened like over and over and over again. And so, you know, me and other engineers of color got to talking and we realized that was a habit of his. He treated all of us that way. Mm. Uh, but the deal is this, right? Here you have somebody who was uh, an up-and-coming manager who was really affirmed by other authority figures in the in the company, and yet 
he was signaling to us that we were different, mm. right? It was kind of like that, you know, remember that? Did you watch Sesame Street? Yeah, back in the day, kid? for sure. Back yeah, in the day, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Remember that, that, that uh, segment? One of these things Sons don't belong together. together. Yeah, right? So it just kind of <laughs> felt like you were getting mm-hmm. told that, right? Like, mm-hmm. ah, yeah, no, you're here, but you're not really apart, right? So mm. you can be, you have these signals that communicate whether or not you're in or not. And this makes a difference because that person that you're referring to up and coming had authority maybe to make recommendations or to work with people. Yes. And so it, that that subtlety moved into being a systemic issue. That's right. right? That's right. Because he was in a position of power and other people supported that. Mm. So what about you, Pastor Rich? Do you have any examples? Well, <laughs> how much time we got? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think about the time when I was in a majority white church and learned that belonging here required more than just holding the same biblical beliefs and virtues. One also needed to shed their unique cultural expressions, uh, particularly ones that made whites feel more uncomfortable. I mean, the first time I led worship in this white church, I sang, how great is our God. Sing, sing. sing with me how great. You know, <laughs> you you, took it there, I right? took it there. Why, hey, not, right? why not? That's me, right? Mm-hmm. Well, when I left the stage, we had a debrief of the service and the, a debrief after the service okay. every time. And the leadership asked me to tone down my expressions what? because it didn't come across as authentic. That was not authentic. Not authentic. They got to determine what was authentic. Wow. And authentic meant what made them feel more comfortable. I didn't leave worship in that church for another five years mm. until they wanted someone to show them what expression looked like during worship. Mm. <laughs> so it, here's the space that's intention, uh, intending to be multiracial. Yeah, yeah. But whites have historically defined what is acceptable and not acceptable Along the lines of race, mm-hmm. and especially mm-hmm. in churches where that that aim to be multiracial, that's quite harmful. It is. It is. And this is the deal about how we do life, right? This racial homophily mm. is we tend to begin to take it for granted. Right? Mm. We don't really think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't come out of nowhere. Right. I mean, this isn't just, you know, how things are. Right. The government played a direct role in this for a long time. I mean, we can talk Mm. about the naturalization laws. Mm -hmm. One of the first, if not the first law, actually, that Congress passed was in 1790. Right. This naturalization law explicitly said that only free white people could naturalize as citizens. Explicitly said that. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this criterion for race stayed in the law for well over a century. Mm -hmm. Right. It really didn't get to be dismantled into the 1950s. Mm. What's also wild is that back in 1917, right, Asians were actually told they couldn't even come to the country. They Not said, allowed. no, banned. 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 Right. Right? And so the government has actively played a role in racial segregation and racial oppression, golly, for so long. And what that did is it established the boundaries of race. It told mm. people over and over again who you're supposed to hang out with and who you can't hang out with. But not only did it tell it, it was legally it was codified. It was legally codified <laughs> because yeah. the government also touches all institutions mm-hmm. of our everyday lives. That's right. Taxes, That's right. who gets tax write-offs Uh-oh. and education. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to go down that route. I didn't mean to go down that route. But it's that the government actively played a role in racial segregation and racial oppression, yeah. thus establishing boundaries 
telling us who we ought to flock with. Yeah, yeah. And for all intended purposes, right, mm-hmm. until pressure was put on the government mm-hmm. through protests, yeah. through legal challenges, That's right. did changes start to be made? That's right. I mean, we have uh, Brown v. Board of Education 1 and 2. Uh-huh. Right? That ended segregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the 1964 Civil Rights Act, right? The mm-hmm. discrimination. 1965 Voting Rights Act, right? We're removing barriers to voting. Right. We have the 1965 Immigration Act that finally opened up immigration, right, across the world, right? So we have all of these things that were going on that changed uh, people's opportunities to get in, be connected to one another. So what's the bottom line then, Dr. Corey? (laughs) The bottom line is this. It wasn't until after these legislative acts and Supreme Court rulings, among others, that began to tip the scales toward justice, because that's what they were doing, Mm -hmm. that diversity followed. Mm. So justice came before diversity. That's right. Progress was made. But we got a long way to go. No, we still got a long way to go. Can I get a witness? Somebody. You can get a witness up in here. We still got a long way to go. <laughs> we still have extensive racial injustice and inequality in this country. Nevertheless, what happened in the 1960s, well, 1950s and 1960s began to open up the doors, so to speak, as these barriers were beginning to be removed. Well, this brings us to the question of what impacted all of this diversity, justice, you know, have on the church? And we've got to look back at our history. And for that, we're going to turn our attention to Jamar Tisby, Mm -hmm. the author of The Color of Compromise. And he's got a new book out, by the way, called How to Fight Racism. Now, Jamar Tisby is the uh, CEO of The Witness, a black Christian collective. And he also co-hosts the podcast, Pass the Mic. Uh, You can follow him on social media, wherever you like to engage in that. Now, I want to listen and uh, and allow us to listen to Brother Tisby, to what he has to say about the church and diversity and justice. I begin with this assertion. This is the civil rights movement of our time. And Christians have a unique responsibility and obligation to act for racial justice. We can see this all over the Bible, but let's just take Genesis 1, 26 through 28, for example. This is where God says that God makes humankind in God's image and God's likeness. This tells us that every human being across the racial and ethnic spectrum has inherent dignity and worth. Unfortunately, throughout North American and U.S. history, Christians, specifically white Christians, have often demonstrated compromise and complicity in the face of racism. And this may be hard for some to hear, but history bears out the fact that when Christians had the opportunity to courageously stand against racism and white supremacy, they too often chose compromise over confrontation. Bear this in mind, William Faulkner said, "...the past is never dead." It's not even past. So even though these events happened long ago, we still see similar patterns and principles at play in the present. As a pastor friend of mine says, we are not guilty of what the people who came before us did, but we are responsible for the world their actions created. And so maybe we aren't the ones who personally enslaved human beings or barred black people from our businesses, 
but we are responsible for the ramifications those past actions have in the present. And so, what were some of those past actions? Well, in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which was a group of white Anglican men, so Christians, passed a law concerning baptism. That law said this, It is enacted and declared by this grand assembly and the authority thereof that the conferring of baptism does not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. In other words, you could be baptized into the household of God, but according to these Christians, according to this compromise, you would always be a second-class citizen in the household of God. Moving forward, in the 1800s, all three major denominations, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, split over slavery. This was leading up to the nation's bloodiest war, the Civil War. And in 1845, the Southern Baptist Convention split over the specific issue of whether a missionary could enslave people and still be commissioned as a missionary. Now, Baptists in the South said yes, and so they split along sectional lines to form the Southern Baptist Convention, which is, to this day, the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it confoundingly contradictory that Baptists in the South saw no contradiction between going overseas to share the good news with the very people of African descent whom they enslaved at home. If that's a little too long ago for you, we can move forward into the 1900s. Most people have heard of the Ku Klux Klan, but many don't realize that the Klan had several iterations, three main iterations. The first was right after the Civil War, and the third was during the Civil Rights Movement to push back against black civil rights. But the second wave, was in many ways the most widespread and violent. And so the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan came on Thanksgiving Day in 1915. A white Methodist circuit writer, so he was a former preacher, he went up to the top of Stone Mountain, Georgia, and on the front of Stone Mountain, Georgia, Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, these Confederate heroes in their minds, and he had a group of white men with him, and they did a couple of things. Number one, they burned a cross, which would, of course, become a symbol of racial terrorism throughout the Jim Crow era. The second thing they did was to build an altar, and on that altar they placed a couple of objects. One was a Bible, and the other was an American flag. And so understand the symbolism here. You've got a burning cross, you've got a Bible, you've got an altar, and so there's religion involved, specifically Christianity involved. But you've also got race. This is not a gathering that was open to just anyone. And then lastly, you have this American flag, which is a symbol of nationalism, and in their minds became uh, xenophobic and very exclusionary. And so all of these things, race and religion and nationalism, tied up together, and to this day, we see the issue of Christian nationalism as infiltrating the church and persuading many people 
against the truth of the gospel, which is inclusive of people across races and ethnicity. And this is not going to make many people happy, but even figures such as Billy Graham, who many hold in very high esteem, he's interesting because he wasn't a foaming-at-the-mouth racist by any means. He wasn't a Bull Connor or uh, a Wallace or anyone like that. At the same time, he refused to take strong stances against racism. Aside from some important yet mostly symbolic actions like pulling down the ropes of uh, segregation at his rallies, he didn't want to make strong stances about race because he didn't want to limit his audience as an evangelist. But as I often say, justice takes sides. And so when Martin Luther King Jr. and his allies were marching and protesting in the early 1960s, Graham said to pump the brakes, let the system work. When cities across the nation were erupting in uprisings and protests against police brutality and concentrated generational poverty. Graham was one of the ones who called for law and order, which typically meant more punitive measures against black and brown and poor communities, where someone like Martin Luther King Jr. said, a riot is the language of the unheard, and what can we learn and understand from the people protesting? And that brings us up to the present day and the era of Black Lives Matter. We saw recently a young black woman, Breonna Taylor, killed in her own home as police executed a no-knock warrant. Black people and their allies have shown incredible restraint in letting the process, letting the system work. But many were angered and upset all over again when the verdict came down that only one officer of the four charged was actually charged, and that was for a Class D felony, wanton endangerment, putting someone in, he was firing blindly and put other people in danger, but no one was actually charged for killing Breonna Taylor. In the wake of the murder of George Floyd, we've seen a wave of protests and uprisings in 2020. It's important that we pay attention to how people respond today, how Christians respond. Are there more calls for law and order, more calls for punitive measures against a people who have been marginalized and oppressed and denied justice for so long? Or are people calling for reform and change and transformation in this system that has so poorly served the people who are most vulnerable? Unfortunately, there tends to be a stark divide between black Christians and white Christians, especially white evangelical. There was a report by Barna that said there is actually a significant increase in the percentage of practicing Christians who say race is not at all a problem in the U.S. Many people say, if I was alive or if I was old enough during the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, I would have marched, I would have picketed, I would have boycotted, I would have been on the side of justice. Well, we're in the civil rights movement of our day. And don't say you would have participated then if you are not participating now. The time for complicity with racism is long past. 
It's time for this generation of Christians to stop compromising with racism and courageously confront it. Wow. That's a word right there, huh, Pastor It Rich? sure is. Mm. What about Brother Tisby's comments really struck you? Well, when he started by quoting the pastor who said, we aren't guilty for the sins of people who came before us, mm. but we are responsible for the world their actions created. Yes. I was snapping and stomping my feet on that. Why are you st- why are you snapping and stomping your feet? Well, because I get so many people who say, uh, you know, my father was not a slave owner and mm-hmm. my family's never held slaves. And somehow they think that excludes them from taking responsibility yeah. for the world that has been created. Yes. yes. <laughs> they have the, somehow become exempt from doing justice. Yeah. Uh, and so when. When Brother Tisby outlined the syncretism of religion and racism and nationalism that was, or rather should I say is, not just a tool of extreme supremacists, Mm -hmm. it is actually an operating system of white supremacy that affects even prominent, well-intentioned white Christian leaders like Billy Graham. Like Billy Graham. Like Billy Graham. Right. And that's really important to recognize, right? Because Mm. Billy Graham is this person, this figure who has been revered not only in this country, but around the world. That's right. Right. And so he also has uh, succumbed and also reproduced white supremacy even in his ministry, Mm -hmm. you know. And so what that suggests is that nobody is exempt. No one is exempt. No one's exempt from the impact of white supremacy that we all have to be engaging in the work of decolonizing ourselves, so to speak, from the impact of that. That's correct. Well, we've seen some history uh, on this. And as we shared earlier, there's lots of legislation of the impact of justice on diversity Mm -hmm. in the workplace, in education and in government. But my question is, what about that impact on churches? Are more churches racially integrated since the civil rights era? Mm. Well, racially homogenous churches still make up a large majority of churches in America. Okay. But actually, a recent study done by my colleagues, uh, Kevin Doherty, Mark Chaves, and Michael Emerson, they actually show in their study a marked increase in multiracial churches over the past couple decades. Well, what did they find? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) So in 1998, 6% of all churches were diverse. And that's based on that 80-20 cutoff, which Mm -hmm. basically says there's no group that makes up more than 80% of the church. Right. But in 2019, that went all the way up to 16%. Mm. So we went from 6% of churches to 16% of churches that were diverse. Now, this actually might be pretty interesting to you, Pastor Rich, because we've talked about uh, multiracial churches being um, largely led by whites and white men in particular. Mm -hmm. Now, they still are, but uh, if we look at that data in 1998, 4% of multiracial churches were led by black pastors. Mm. Mm. Now, 2019, 16%. Well, I think I'm in that 16%. You're in that 16%. Look <laughs> at that's you, Pastor really, That's really encouraging to hear that growth. You know, I can imagine some homogenous churches changed over that period of time and became more diverse voluntarily. You know, they took, made intentions to become more diverse. And others were involuntary, so to speak. Maybe the neighborhood around the church changed racially. And because I'm a church planter, I have to imagine that there were some intentional 
brand new churches that said they were going to make diversity an aim for their mission and their vision and values. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. All of this led to the growth of more multiracial churches. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a part of it, right? So and what you're sort of signaling is some changes around the churches as well. Mm. right? So there are a couple explanations there. One of them you already uh, touched upon, right? So we've had this like multi-ethnic church movement that's emerged over the past couple decades or so. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen is, this is particularly among evangelicals. So this is actually not so common among Catholic churches. It's not so common among mainline churches. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that they do, they do religion differently. So they're not really like actively promoting with this like multi-ethnic church movement in the same way. Um, But you see all these conferences and you see all these networks forming and as I said, those are just promoting like how to do multi-ethnic churches and even making claims that all churches should be multi-ethnic. Mm-hmm. Right. So you see that. Um, but we also see something else going on. And I suspect that it's actually a bigger driver okay. of these sort of this increase in the proportion of churches that are multiracial. And that has to do with actually the demographics of the country. Mm. Right. So we've had some major demographic shifts. The country in 1990, for example, was 84 percent white Anglo, 84 mm-hmm. percent white Anglo in 2019, 60 percent white Anglo. Okay. I mean, that's a major change. Right. So we're seeing this church, the, the country rather has become increasingly uh, diverse. Right. We're now on the flip of that. Right. Forty percent of people are people of color in the U.S. Well, that feels like a rapid change <laughs> and uh, quite honestly, a challenge for leading a diverse multiracial church. But I'm also thinking, how does the church disciple people into being one body in Christ, not just a local congregation to embrace one another mm-hmm. across uh, race and even class? Mm-hmm. And I have to imagine that white members are going to have a huge challenge because their world is shifting, particularly from being a white centered world. Yeah, right. At least to the ex- at least that it's not as diverse. Right. It can still mm. be white centered. Okay. Even though it's diverse, but what we're what we are seeing, um, the Pew Research Center actually did a little bit of stuff on this, where we are seeing that there might be perceiving these changes as a threat, Mm. right? Uh, The research they did showed that nearly half of whites believe that an America where the majority of people are people of color will actually lead to a weakening of American customs and values. Yeah, I can uh, I can imagine uh, that is a, a high concern. Um, even, even the way we look at justice, uh, people of color see that as central to the gospel, mm-hmm. whereas a uh, majority of whites do not see that as central. They see that as tertiary yeah, uh, yeah. to the gospel. You know, it's on the edge. Did you say tertiary? I did. Did you bust out the word I bu- tertiary? <laughs> I, bust, I broke it out. <laughs> you did. In other we got homophily up in here. We got tertiary. I had here. to get something in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but this can create some great divisions when we're not seeing justice equally or we're yeah. not sharing the same, you know, goal. Or if we think the goal is diversity. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that diversity is doing more harm than good. Yeah, yeah. It absolutely can. It absolutely what, can. What does all this mean, though, for multiracial churches? Well, on the one hand... Okay, we're seeing that the proportion of multiracial churches is growing in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. And we can say, yeah, that's good. We might perceive that as good. But on the other hand, and as many of my colleagues and I have found in our research, they're not often like delivering on what they seem to be promising. Ouch. Yeah. (laughs) Ouch. 
What did the multiracial church promise? Well, I mean, I think what's going on here is that when you say you're diverse and we are we are a diverse congregation, we're a multi-ethnic congregation, uh, it signals that it's going to be an inclusive congregation. Mm-hmm. It's going to be an equitable congregation. It's going to be a space where you're going to care about the things that are that matter to me, that are hard for me, that are difficult for me. And I'm going to do right. the same for you. Right. Um, yeah. That's not what the research is suggesting is happening. Mm. So, for example, um, one research study was done where it looked at the racial attitudes of people who attend multiracial churches. Okay. And so one of the arguments that was made for multiracial churches is this, right? If white people hang out with more, right, we break up that homophily, mm-hmm. right, and you have more integration and white people hang out with more people of color, then they'll be more exposed to the experiences of people of color, the attitudes of people of color. Mm-hmm. They'll learn more about systemic racism mm-hmm. but that's actually not what happened their attitudes have remained the same yes so whether you are a white person that goes to a multiracial church or you go to a homogenous church there's no difference in your attitudes as it relates to race mm. however black and brown people who go to multiracial churches they're more likely to have individualistic attitudes as compared to black and brown people who don't go to multiracial churches. So it actually did the flip. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, it went the opposite direction, right? Mm -hmm. So that's on the attitude side. And then we have to talk about, well, what do people get to do? What kind of ministry are they a part of? How how are they engaged in the church? And research is also showing that uh, the kinds of things that people do Uh, People of color in particular do. They tend to be more symbolic Mm -hmm. uh, in multiracial churches. They tend to be in those positions that people can see. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's showing that the church is diverse. So what does right. that mean? So like researchers show like they'll be like ushers, uh, the greeters mm-hmm. uh, on the stage singing. Right. right? Yeah, right. they don't have any positions of real authority or power. Right. Right. So the power dynamics remain the same, but the church is able to show that it's diverse. Like right. we we are a diverse congregation. Right. In fact, this kind of dynamic can happen even when you have churches merge. So our 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 colleague who was on the Religious Leadership and Diversity Project, yeah. Kirsten Bate Priest, she actually wrote a, a an article about this. She did a study of a church, two churches that merged, a white church and a black church that merged. Mm-hmm. And what she found in her study is that over time, white people began to take take over, have more authority, uh, fill positions of power in the church, and the black people had less and less power, even though the churches started, they had, and they were on equal footing when they started, right? So multiracial churches aren't always, you know, coming through, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, At least on what they seem to be promising. And that's because the emphasis is so high on the diversity. So high. I mean, when you when you mentioned putting people in visible places, Mm -hmm. but without really taking their concerns to heart. Yes. And their concerns, not just in the church, but even outside of the church. Mm -hmm. And when the Mm -hmm. church says, well, we don't do that. We don't we don't we're not really concerned about the 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 misappropriations in education no, or the yeah. misrepresentation in uh, the halls of government, local yeah. or federal, that we're, we're here just to do church. We're here just to do church. We're just here to teach Jesus. That's right. We're, we're just here to, you know, preach the Lord. We're, and, you know, and the, the thing is, and even like when we talk about what's going on today, when we think about 
the pain that people are feeling as it relates to black people, black people being killed, you know, do you, it's like, do you feel that pain? Do you feel that pain? Right. Because I see, I cannot divorce my race from who I am just because I walked into this building. That's right. I am a person of color. <laughs> and if you want to be connected with me, you got to be connected with me and have a relationship with me and, and being oneness with me, all of me. Right. Yeah, I, I can think right now a question that I get off asked often is doesn't my ethnicity um, be sub should my ethnicity be subservient to my Christianity? You know, I became a Christian, so I should say that I'm a Christian first mm-hmm. and then, you know, I'm black or I'm white or I'm 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 Chinese, you know, later as if that has dismissed becoming a Christian has dismissed your race or ethnicity. It is not. It is not. It is not. <laughs> and they pull out scriptures that are so mistreated yes. about there is therefore now no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus, that Galatians 3 passage. And ignore this. Do you change your gender when you came uh, became a follower of Jesus? No. <laughs> right? And your ethnicity, your race has been poured into Christ or rather even Christ has been poured into that ethnicity that enhances and uh, beautifies who you are. It reveals the beauty of God. That's right. That's right. It reveals it doesn't remove it doesn't remove it. Yeah. So which, what, what, what people of color want when they come into a space, any space is they want to be seen. As you said earlier, we don't want to feel or seem invisible. We don't want to be invisible. We don't want to be invisible. You know, and so there's this sense that um, being a part of a multiracial church in some contexts, not all, not all multiracial churches are like this, but there's a pattern Mm -hmm. that the research is suggesting that that's the case, that you have to sort of leave that at the door Mm. if you're going to be a part. That's right. And that's That's it. And that's not cool. (laughs) <laughs> that's it. That's say not the least. cool. That's, that's not, not cool. cool. Yeah. The experience of power inequality yeah. <laughs> and injustice is up close and personal in racially diverse churches. Yes. It becomes up close and personal. Right. Whereas in the homogeneous churches, it was at a distance. It was there. It was there. <laughs> but it was at a distance. It was at a distance. Right. <laughs> yes. And that's really that's the painful piece that. I'm feeling as we're having this conversation today. And you know what's painful about it, Pastor Rich, is that when people come into diverse spaces like that, that are kind of signaling and promising that they're going to be one with you, is mm. that you let down your guard. Uh, yeah, because yes. you're, you're, you you yes. come in open mm-hmm. and then you can experience you know that pain. And it can be, it can, it's quite painful. It is. It's quite painful. It is quite painful. When you you walk in a church building and you don't get the the eye, uh, you know, head nod or the acknowledgement <laughs> that you're even there. That's true. You don't even even there. Even there. and even if after a while you're there for a while, um, it, you just begin to sense that you're not as as a part. And this mm. is again, this is the things that we find in research. I found this in the elusive dream for a number of black people that were in the church. Mm-hmm. So particularly this message about uh, diversity in the multiracial church can be an overpromise, right? They imply yeah. equality and acceptance, but don't deliver on it. And as you said, it's not all, you know, multiracial mm-hmm. churches, but it is an issue that we need to continue, contend with. That's right. That's right. And so what we see then is that while we, we are seeing some changes outside of the church, 
Mm-hmm. Right. When it comes to uh, integration and we're seeing s- s- some uh, dealing with issues of injustice, we got a long way to go. We got a long Ain't way to go. Nobody trying to say nothing different on that. Don't mm-hmm. get don't get I'm not getting it twisted mm-hmm. yet. The church in many ways is uh, still not dealing with justice or particularly certain segments of the church. I mean, it's not again, it's not all, but certain segments of the church. And in part, that's because um Religion, when they talked about the separation of church and state, they are not under the same sort of limitations or expectations, rather, mm-hmm. um, that the, that is on other institutions in the country, right? Mm-hmm. And so religion has to, in the church in particular, we have to begin to come up with how are we going to deal with justice. And it's our work, not the government's work. In this context, in yes. This context. In this context. Our being the church. Our being the church. The people of God. But people of God, because, you know, of that separation of church and state. And so when we think about the answer to what comes first, mm-hmm. diversity or justice, mm-hmm. I mean, I think the answer is pretty clear. Yeah, when we I look agree. at things historically, mm-hmm. when we look at things sociologically, mm-hmm. it is justice. It is justice. When you begin to move toward justice, then you begin to see diversity mm-hmm. and you have to continue on in that in that process. Mm-hmm. Um, dealing with justice, opening up to diversity. Because if you don't do that, then you can have some 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 challenging outcomes mm-hmm. and some pain. And I think our God is pretty clear on this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many references in the Bible about the centrality of justice to the kingdom of God and the character of God. So many. Um, I can list off so. Uh, Many, many scriptures, but I'm going to just look at a couple of them. Uh, we can look at Isaiah 61, 8, where it says this, For I, the Lord, love justice. Mm-hmm. We can mm-hmm. think about Isaiah thirty eighteen, where it says this, The Lord is a God of justice. I mean, that's mm-hmm. God actually proclaiming who God is. Right. Making it very clear. This I am a God of justice. I love justice. So there is no doubt um, that justice is actually quite biblical. Mm-hmm. Now, what are the different views out there? What are, what do you see God in his words saying, Pastor Rick? I see that diversity, first of all, is God's idea. It's not a reaction to the culture. From the very beginning of creation, God expressed beauty in the diversity from vegetation on the earth to birds in the air to animals on the land, mm-hmm. creatures of the sea. And even in humanity, there is gender diversity. Yes. That reflects the image of God. But unity is also God's idea. We, we've already said that Jesus prayed in John 17 that his church would be one and that oneness would be a witness to the world that is divided. Mm-hmm. That we would love one another <laughs> the way love he has loved another. us. Yes. But justice is also God's idea. Amen. From the very first story of violence and injustice recorded in the Bible with Cain murdering his brother Abel, the Lord says, I hear his cry from the ground. Mm-hmm. And then he does something personally to bring about righteousness, which yes. is another word for justice, yes. which means to make things right. Yes. So yes. I see so much agreement between these perspectives from sociology and theology. So why do you think pastors miss this theological perspective of justice, Pastor Rich? 
Well, that's an interesting question, because in my heart of hearts, Dr. Corey, I believe most pastors get the theological perspective of justice. Mm. God righting wrongs and restoring order and repairing brokenness. That's orthodox Christianity. Now, naturally, from our earliest of age, we've identified with this concept since we personally felt mistreated by someone who exerted their strength or position over us. We knew then that someone greater than our bully, if you will, Mm. was the one to deal with our suffering and our pain. Mm. But here's the rub. Okay, most white pastors can't imagine themselves as the bully Mm. or maybe even at the very least friends with the bully or even ones who benefit from the bully's actions Uh as they are innocently bystanding and Mm. watching what happens. Mm. You know, these beliefs and behaviors being out of line with the God of justice. You know, bullies got their crew. They got a crew. They don't travel alone. They don't travel alone. And they're always beneficiaries of the bullies activities. Mm -hmm. And white people, white people and pastors in particular need to admit that they are a part of the crew or at least innocently watching while it happens. That's right. That's right. So why do you think they can't imagine themselves as the bully? Pastors in particular. I'm going to rely on my, my friend, uh, Reverend, Howard Thurman. You friends with Howard Thurman? <laughs> well, he did go to Morehouse College. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, he was a theologian. And in his incredible book, Jesus and the Disinherited, he says, Jesus has been misinterpreted by those with power and authority. Whereas Jesus is best understood by the, pa- the poor and the marginalized who have no claim to an inheritance. You see, Jesus entered the world as a poor immigrant refugee and to identify with Jesus is to identify with the marginalized. Mm. And I think we Mm. have a limited understanding of our Christianity that is painfully individualistic Mm. and results on issues of power or relies on issues of power. And the beauty of the kingdom and the message of Jesus is that we are collectively connected to one another. We are communal. We are together. Yes, (laughs) yes. That often gets overlooked. Uh, But it's all throughout Scripture that God talks to us as a body he talks to us as a community. He talks to us as a country. Right. Right. Over and over and over again. Right. And the And the point that you brought up from uh, Howard Thurman, that that God came in the form of a person who was who was marginalized, mm-hmm. a people group that was marginalized. And God demonstrates that God identifies uh, with the marginalized right. people in this world. Right. right. He had no place to lay his head. He had no place to lay his That head. wasn't just metaphorical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he literally was like, no, I got no place to lay my head. <laughs> so right. when we think about justice and diversity working together, what picture from, from Scripture really comes to your mind? Well, a picture that often is quoted when, mm. when people talk about diversity, particularly in churches, comes from Revelation 7-9. Mm-hmm. And it reads this, After this I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. Mm-hmm. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And so this is mm-hmm. often quoted. And I know you've heard this, Pastor Rich. Oh, Actually, yeah. you even mentioned it yourself, right? On something we, that you've, you've quoted as yeah. you were thinking about planning a multi-ethnic right. church, right. right? That this vision. But when I see this vision... There's there are a lot of other elements to that that aren't talked about, mm-hmm. right? But what you're seeing are people who are at one. You're seeing people that are uh, acting in unity, 
Yes. You're seeing people who are clearly all on the same level. That's right. right? You don't see people of different statuses there. Mm -hmm. You don't see that some people groups are more powerful than others. Right. Right. You don't see that one culture is dominating. Right. Right. I mean, you don't we don't we don't talk about the fact that the person who's seeing this vision says, I see tribes, Mm -hmm. people of different languages, different people groups. Right. And so what that's suggesting that that's all present. And it was all equally present. And the only difference that we see in status is between the people who are operating in unity. Come on. Who are praising God. Mm -hmm. Right? There's Mm -hmm. God and there's us. And there's the people. There's God and there's us. And it's a very diverse group of people, but everybody is on the same level. Yes. Nobody's more powerful than another group. And that's really, really critical. Right. So the diversity that we see here is what's to come Mm. in many ways. Right. Mm -hmm. It's an example of what happens after God has made things right. After he's made things right. Absolutely. Mm. Right. That that inequality, that injustice, that is not present there. Right. And it is a beautiful thing to behold. That's the beautiful thing to behold. Mm -hmm. Not just the diversity. It was the oneness. It was the justness. It was what was everything being made right. Well, my takeaway today is that we would see more justice coming before diversity. Absolutely. I know we got a long way to go, but I am encouraged by what has been happening, what we're what we're seeing in the churches and even in our surrounding communities. But understanding that diversity can do more harm than good Mm. when justice is not put in its proper place. That's right. That we aren't dealing with the inequalities that are present. That's right. We've got to do do better. That's What's right. your takeaway or your final thought today? I absolutely agree, Pastor Rich. Uh, I don't, you know, when you have churches coming together and ca- causing people harm just in the name of being diverse, that's not the best way to go. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about something in uh, the book of First Corinthians. And where Paul is actually writing to the Church of Corinth. And that was a very diverse church from what I understand, right? right. Mm -hmm. On a lot of different levels. But in 1 Corinthians 11, 17, he's not feeling what's going on in the church. Mm. You know, there's a lot of division in the church and there's inequality in the church and there's injustice in the church. And he says, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. You know, and so, you know, we got to be careful about, you know, being diverse for diverse sake. Mm -hmm. It's about it's about bringing people into oneness. It's about bringing bringing people to a place where there's where there's no inequality and where there's no injustice. Mm. Right. That is what's ultimately honoring to God. Amen. Amen. So let's tell our listeners how they can stay engaged. We're so glad that you listened here on episode two. What can you tell folks uh, about where to find us, Dr. Corey? Well, you can find us on Apple Pod- Apple Podcast mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and Spotify. Spotify. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter. Look for Corey Little Edwards. That's Corey spelled K-O-R-I-E, Little Edwards. How about you, Pastor Rich? <laughs> I was ready to jam with you there as you were spelling <laughs> things out. <laughs> hey. Well, you can follow me at Rich Johnson online, primarily on Instagram, also occasionally engaged on Twitter. And we thank you all so much for listening and sharing this episode with your family, friends, and others. We want you to know that the dream may be elusive, but what, Dr. Corey? It is attainable. It is attainable. 